Welcome to the Bridging Theology podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian living. Bridging Theology is hosted by Drs. Beth Stovell, Claudia Herrera Montero, Kevin Hill, Ryan Reed, and me, Candace Smith. Today's episode features a conversation with Dr. Maria del Socorro Castaneda. Dr. Castaneda is a sociologist and the co-founder with her teen daughter Lupita of Becoming Mujeres, which is a firm that provides workshops and seminars to Latina teens and their female caregivers. She is also the award-winning author of Our Lady of Everyday Life, La Virgin de Guadalupe, and the Catholic Imagination of Mexican Women in America. Oxford University Press in 2018. You can learn more at becomingmujeres.com and from her YouTube channel, Becoming Mujeres. Our hosts today are Claudia Herrera Montero, who specializes in practical theology, and Kevin Hill, who specializes in patristic theology. And now on with the conversation. Candice, and thank you for listening. I am Claudia Herrera. And I'm Kevin Hill. Today, we're pleased to have with us Dr. Maria del Socorro Castañeda. Soco, welcome to the Bridging Theology podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Claudia and Kevin, for gifting me the opportunity to share my work with all of you. So thank you. Thank you. Muchas gracias. Welcome, uh, Soco. Bienvenida. Uh, we would like to start with uh, some ice-breaking uh, questions. Um, we always talk about our work, uh, the things that we do in academia, in our jobs, but um, it is important for our listeners to know the human part of us. So we would like to ask you uh, uh, to please share uh, something uh, about yourself most people do not know. Okay, one of the things that most people do not know is that um, I love Hallmark Christmas movies. <laughs> and, you know, when sometimes when I, when I feel down or, in a, um, or, or I'm just missing Christmas, I know I'll, I'll put on a, a Christmas uh, a Hallmark movie. And I know, you know, as a sociologist, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's, uh, there, there's, um, not everything, you know, obviously life is not like a Hallmark movie and there's lack of diversity and we can go on and on and on. But just in terms of just the, the message itself, you know, that's that's what gravitates me to to watch these Hallmark movies. So so that's that's what I, one of the things that most people do not know, that I love Hallmark movies. <laughs> you remind me because I love them too. And it's my consciousness. Like when I put them alive, like, I'm a Latina theologian. This should be like this or not. No, no, no. This is Hallmark time. This is Hallmark movie <laughs> with you. So we're going to move to uh, the first half uh, of the questions on your research. Uh, we're both interested about uh, your recent book, Our Lady of uh, Everyday Life. Uh, La Virgen de Guadalupe and the Catholic Imagination of Mexican Women in America. Yes, thank you. Um, so very briefly, just to give a historical context of, of the apparition, 
according to Catholic tradition, Our Lady Guadalupe appeared about 10 years after the conquest of what we now know as Mexico. And it was a time when the Nahuatl people had lost all hope. Uh, their dignity had been stripped away. Their um, humanity was questioned. Their political, social, and religious institutions, their ways of knowing uh, were shattered to pieces. So it was a time that was very, very um, devastating, horrible. I mean, there are no words to explain what you know the, the people at that time went through. So uh, it was during that, it was within this context that one morning, Our Lady of Guadalupe appeared to a Nahua man named Juan Diego. And just uh, just to clarify, I say Nahua because Nahua is a language that the people spoke in Mexico. The different groups of people spoke uh, Nahua. So um, oftentimes scholars referred to uh, to them as a collective, as a Nahua people. So that's why I say a Nahua man um, named Juan Diego. So she uh, she appeared uh, to Juan Diego, and she appeared on the on the hill of Tepeyac or Mount of Tepeyac, and that is very significant because that was a sacred site to the mother goddess Donantzin, who um, the Nahua people venerated. So she appeared to Juan Diego and asked Juan Diego to go before the bishop and and tell the bishop that she wanted a hermitage to be built on that hill. So Juan Diego, I mean, seeing this, this beautiful heavenly lady dressed in a blue mantle, um, he he was mesmerized. He so he you know he goes to the bishop, uh, joyous, you know, and, and and tells the bishop what he had seen and what this beautiful lady wanted, and the bishop did not believe him. He says that you know come come tomorrow, tell me the story again, you know, uh, um, with do you you gotta tell me again and. Um, and slower is like so. Basically, he, the bishop did not believe Juan Diego. So Juan Diego ba- goes back to Our Lady of Guadalupe and devastated, and tell, tells Our Lady of Guadalupe, "I told the bishop what I had seen. I deliver your message, but Bishop Sumarraga did not believe him, and uh, and he even went ahead and told Our Lady of Guadalupe, why don't you send someone else, someone that is more more articulate, someone that is more credible.'" Someone that they will believe, not me. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a Nawa man. I'm a nobody. They, that's the reason why they don't believe me. So this is really important in what how women in my book, and then you know, just Catholics in general who are devoted to Our Lady Guadalupe. Um, why you know she's so important? She tells Juan Diego, so no, it has to be you. You know, I consider anyone anyone else, but it has to be you that delivers that message to the bishop. So he goes back to the bishop and he does so a, a total of four times. And it was not until the, the, the third time that our, uh, that the bishop says, okay, the, the only way that I'm going to believe you is if you tell the heavenly lady to give me a sign, a sign that will let me know that her apparition is real. And um, right when, he, when Juan Diego was going to go and, and see our, our Lady of Guadalupe and tell her, what Bishop Sumarraga had uh, said, uh, he finds out that his uncle Juan Bernardino falls ill. He was he was very very sick. He was dying. 
So he says like, okay, I, I cannot, I can, I can't let my uncle alone. Um, but I do need to go and see and, and get a priest for, for his, uh, for confession, because that's what his uncle wanted. He wanted to see a priest. So Juan Diego thinks, maybe if I go a different way, uh, um, I won't see the lady. So he kind of went to snuck around and went a different way. So that way he can go get the, the, the priest to bring back to his uncle. So he goes a different way and our lady Guadalupe appears and, and, uh, to Juan Diego. And then tell, and he tells Juan Diego, no estoy yo aquí que soy tu madre. Am I not here that I am your mother? What else do you need? What do you need? I've been a very endearing voice. And she, she tells Juan, uh, Juan Diego not to worry about his uncle, that his uncle is, will be in good health and to trust her. And, uh, and he says, as I, and then Juan Diego you know, tells Our Lady Guadalupe about the, what the bishop uh, wanted. So she, she uh, Our Lady Guadalupe tells Juan Diego, okay, go around the hill and you'll see some roses. Cut them and bring them before me. Juan Diego was puzzled because it was the dead of winter, December. The roses don't grow in the month of December, especially at that time. And um, so, but nevertheless, he went ahead and did as he was told by Our Lady Guadalupe. And sure enough, roses were there. So he cut some roses and bring them. Uh, puts them in his tilma, or you know, loosely translated, a cloak, his cloak, uh, in his tilma, and brings them before Our Lady of Guadalupe. Our Lady of Guadalupe blesses those roses and says, "Okay, now go and give that sign to the bishop." When Juan Diego goes to the bishop and unfolds the cloak, uh, the roses fall to the ground, and the image of Our Lady gets imprinted on the tilma. And it's that tilma that to this day still is still stands, and it's at the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And um, what the uh, late theologian Virgilio Lizondo um, used um, used to say is that the the first conversion was not the Nahuatl people, but the conversion of the bishop. That he was the bishop was the one who converted first. He was the one who who saw that you know, Our Lady of Guadalupe wanted to be in Mexico and that she had chosen what the Spaniards considered the low class, the nobodies, the ones whose dignity was questioned, the one whose humanity was questioned. Out of everybody, she chose Juan Diego. And that message is a message that carries and sustains our people to this day. You know, if you talk to people um, now, they say that she could have appeared anywhere else. But she chose Mexico, and that's one of the reasons also why she's mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Uh, important, uh, especially if, when it comes to um, uh, uh, political uh, political movements that have to do with injustice. Uh, when you see where the immigration reform, you'll see the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Cesar Chavez carried a banner of Our Lady of Guadalupe because Our Lady of Guadalupe walks with those whose dignity is questioned. She walks with those whose humanity is has been questioned or stripped away. Wow, it's it's a uh, it, it it is so so powerful, uh, Soko, to hear the story from from you, and and see how the story carries you to those women that still sometimes consider in the margins. Um, and do not have a voice, and then here we are again, bringing them to the table where they can participate, where they can talk and speak. So, and that's why 
We would like to hear more about your work and and perhaps now hearing about how you talk about Our Lady of Guadalupe. Um, tell us a little bit more about what brought you to it. Yes, that's a, that's a thank you for that question. That's a very important question because there is one one person in particular that that I want to highlight, and I am very very grateful for. And it's my uh, now colleague and mentor, Dr. Gaston Espinosa. Okay, uh, you know, a, a, a colleague of, you know, a male colleague of Puerto Rican descent was was the one who you know who who really you know encouraged me to to write this book and how this came about. Uh, first of all, thank you, Gaston. You know, I am forever grateful for for these initial conversations um, that I had with you. Um, and so how this happened was that I was um, I was his research assistant when I was a graduate student. And uh, and then he was putting t- uh, together a collection of essays on spiritual activism. And then he said he invited me to write a piece on Our Lady Guadalupe. He said, I think you'll be, you know, you'll be good to, to write a, a chapter on Our Lady of Guadalupe. And he said, you know, you know what, what I see a lot is that there's different um, scholarly interpretations of Our Lady of Guadalupe. You have theologians talking about her. You have the um, uh, Chicana uh Artists, you know, interpreting Our Lady of Guadalupe. You have uh, Chicana literary critics. We're you know, talking about Our Lady of Guadalupe. His, uh, historians, so bring them all together and 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 help us understand what what you no know, what uh, these the different interpretations mean. And uh, you know, and I got very excited. So so I went ahead and and I started doing the research. And the more I the research I did on Our Lady of Guadalupe, the more fascinated I was. And the initial Google search I did on Our Lady of Guadalupe, it, it, it came back with, uh, like, I don't know, thousands and thousands of pieces that had been written Our Lady of Guadalupe from all the different disciplines, archaeology, history, theology, wow. uh, uh, from, from uh, anthropology, from everywhere. So, um, so I went ahead and, and, did this, uh, and did this chapter. And, uh, you know, he, he really liked it. He was published in this anthology. And then the, our conversations continued. And he said, you know, have you thought of, like, expanding and writing your dissertation on this? And, and then and, and I'm like, oh, no, like, there, there's, no, I can't do that. And let me tell you why I, I first initially said, I was like, I can't, I can't do that. Because for me, I'm a, I'm a Catholic, a practicing Catholic. So Our Lady of Guadalupe is something that is very personal. Uh, some, you know, Our Lady of Guadalupe was my graduate buddy, the one I cried to, the image. I cried so much before that image when I, I was overwhelmed by the, the different ways that graduate, graduate school ex, uh, pulls you and extends you and reshapes you. Uh, so th- she was something very personal. So to me, to write a dissertation on Our Lady of Guadalupe never crossed my mind. And, uh, but, you know, we had conversations, uh, again, I was his research assistant. So we always left a little time after I had to, I, I worked with what I needed to do for, for his project. And we talked about Guadalupe and he was a, so it was through those conversations that I decided writing on Our Lady of Guadalupe and my dissertation advisor, uh, Dr. Denise Segura, uh, she's a Chicana sociologist. She said, okay, so are you sure you want to write on Our Lady of Guadalupe? So because this is not going to be an easy task because there's it's there's so much rain out there in Our Lady of Guadalupe. So you're you know you want to add more uh, to this to this you know conversations that you know you really got to think that this is not a uh, dissertation that will be done in a year. It's going to take you more. 
And I'm like, no, okay, no, I want to do it. So sure enough, it, it took me <laughs> a long time to finish it. I always say that the book actually, I, it's like three books in one. Because I did, I conducted research among three different age cohorts as I, uh, young college women, mothers, and older women. The age range is 18 to 82. So we, you know, it's, it's a big range. And, um, and the, the mujeres, the young college women, I call them mujeres because when I began interviewing them, they would refer to themselves as nosotros las mujeres, as the mujeres. So then I, you know, I, that's the reason why I gave them that name in my book, Las Mujeres. The mothers used to refer to themselves as madres. Nosotros las madres, you know, nosotros las madres. So I said, okay, then, you know, there'll be las madres. The third cohort, uh, I used initially, you know, I, I used to refer to them as las abuelitas, the grandmothers, and I was corrected every time. One, uh, one of them in particular, I still remember her. Uh, she she used to say, oh, you know, you mean las damas. And, we're, and I'm like, yeah, 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 no, las, las damas. And then I would forget. And I was like, como ustedes, de abuelitas. And again, she would be, oh, quieres decir nosotros las damas. Uh, so to me, that was, that was a very uh, eye-opening and a reminder as a researcher that oftentimes we impose labels and I and, and identities onto people, and we no, we do not allow space for them to define th- themselves. So uh, for me, that was very important. So that's the reason why I referred in my book to college age women as las mujeres, the mothers as las madres, and the older ladies as las damas as the ladies because they chose those those names uh, for themselves. Could you translate the last one for us then? Yeah, ladies? las damas. Yeah, la, las damas means the ladies. The ladies. You know, okay. Yeah, because uh, before I I would refer to them as the grandmothers. No, all of you grandmothers, and they you know they're probably like no 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 no. First of all, they were not all grandmothers. There were some yeah. women who were single. Second is like they didn't like the grandmother title. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to be called the ladies. Um, so that's the reason why. Yeah, that's la, fair. Las damas. Okay. Okay. That is so wonderful. I remember when I was writing, beginning writing my dissertation, Soko and I were, were in a panel together in mm-hmm. Actus, the Academy of Catholic Hispanic Theologians. And uh, I, I believe it was in 2014, right, Soko? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I was starting my dissertation and it, I, I was starting to shape my dissertation, just starting the research. And it was only about college-age Latinas. Mm-hmm. And seen, and it took me a whole dissertation to write only about college age Latinas uh, and their religious identity. And now thinking about three these three age like intergenerational mm-hmm. dynamics and lived experiences and social locations, I think uh, it, it is a great resource for those of us uh, doing work with maybe college age students or abuelas we I, I i remember we we have had conversations on that and then talking thinking about about a my experience or my lived experience of growing up in colombia cafe con leche or coffee with milk uh was always part of my abuela's table and and conversation 
uh, and now living in South Florida for the past 15 years, cafe con leche or cafecito con leche. It's mm-hmm. also part of the Cuban American culture, uh, cultura cubana, you know, uh, it's, it's part of that. So, um, and somehow it points us always towards, uh, our lady, uh, towards La Virgen somehow. So I'm interested to learn more about your chapter about Our Lady of Café con Leche. Oh, thank you. Yes, um, I, I love this, uh, the, the Café con Leche. And what actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a segment of my book where I, I share uh, with the reader how, how the Café con Leche metaphor came about. Okay, so let, um, let me go ahead and put on my reading glasses. <laughs> so this, is, this comes from Chapter 2, Our Lady of Café con Leche. And it goes, what does coffee with milk have to do with Mexican Catholicism? According to Esperanza, age 68, it has everything to do with it. I had arranged to interview Esperanza after the 12 noon mass. On our way to her apartment for the interview, we stopped at the local taqueria and bought tacos to go. She lives in a one-bedroom apartment in a complex for for low-income senior citizens. She never married and lived alone. And unlike the other damas, she was bilingual. We had our meal and chatted. Then she offered me pan dulce, Mexican pastry, also referred to as sweet bread, and coffee. As I poured the leche or milk in my cafe, coffee, and mixed it, we began the interview. She began to talk about growing up Catholic and repeatedly made reference to La Virgen de Guadalupe as a brown Mexican virgin, mother of all Mexicans. This prompted me to ask whether for her, Our Lady of Guadalupe is a Mexican cultural symbol or a Catholic religious symbol. Esperanza looked at me wordlessly, then asked me to take the spoon I had used to stir my coffee. In a firm but endearing tone, she asked, could you please do me a favor and remove the milk from the coffee you are drinking? Her question caught me by surprise. I have to confess, I felt puzzled as well as stupid. I looked at her and told her that what she asked me was impossible for the coffee and milk were mixed. She then pr- proceeded to say, Exactamente, mija. México es como el café con leche. No se puede separar a la Virgen de Guadalupe de la religión y la cultura. Todo está mezclado. Exactly, my dear one. Mexico is like coffee with milk. You cannot separate the Virgin of Guadalupe from religion and culture. It is all mixed together. Her answer left me speechless. With a very simple example, she was able to synthesize the multi-layered quality of her Mexican Catholic imagination. Esperanza's reply reveals why it is so important to pay close attention to the metaphors people use to describe their ways of knowing, for these are the entryways into the complex social-religious influences that shape people's worlds. So this is where the the term "no café con leche" uh, comes um, comes about. It was it was. Um, Esperanza, the one who who shared this with me, and I, and I 
remember as I was reading this text, it took me back to when I was stirring the my coffee and then she asked me to remove the milk. And I was I remember looking at her and thinking to myself, Oh my God, why do I tell her? I don't want to be disrespectful. <laughs> You've probably never looked at it again the same way after that. No, no. What what a profound image. That is incredible. Yes. And, and then in this particular chapter, what I talk about is how uh, children who are born into Catholic families, how they, um, the way that they are socialized into Catholicism, and in particular to devotion to Our Lady Guadalupe, is through, um, through imagery. Before they can comprehend a prayer, or they, before they can really understand a story of a, of a miracle granted in the family, uh, they are exposed to images, uh, whether it's um, um, home altars, statues, images of Our Lady of Guadalupe, St. Jude. Um, um, also, the uh, they, parents take them to place, to religious place, the reenactments of, for example, the apparition of Our Lady of Guadalupe. So all all these, um, the home altars, statues, images, and you know, the, the plays they attend, uh, uh, they all become the building blocks of the children's Mexican Catholic imagination. So when they, when I asked the women, um, all women, women across the cohorts, when I asked them, how, how old are you, how old were you when you first learned about Our Lady of Guadalupe? You know, especially the older women would look at me and they would laugh, you know, in a way say, you know, this is a very dumb question, you know. Uh, and one of them said, you know, es que se lleva en la sangre, like she's in our blood they're not able to pinpoint at what exact moment or age they learn about Our Lady of Guadalupe because ever since they, you know, they, they could remember, she has always been there. So I just want to talk to you about one of the chapters in your book. It explores how girls in Mexican Catholic families are raised to show obedience and respect. And you argue that although obedience and respect are typically regarded as virtues, they can also reduce a girl's agency in the world. You describe it as a girl's agency being reduced to rubble. Can you tell us a little bit more about why this is a problem and also about what you think can be done to correct this problem? Thank you. Thank you very much for for your question. It's a very, very important question. Um, I say that, you know, obedience and respect can be life-giving to to anyone, you know, and I think, you know, it's part of a of our moral values, but when we pass on those values uh, without any parameters, it can become very it it, it, it can become um, stifling, and it can it can put uh, girls in this case in danger. And so, let me I'm gonna also read again another passage uh, to help you to help all of us understand what why I mean about when we don't put parameters, when we do not. Uh, say, okay, obedience and respect is important, but there are exceptions, you know, and, and so let me go ahead and, and read Artemia's story. Yeah, Artemia is, uh, she's from the older cohort, and um, and she, uh, um, let me see, uh, I have it right here. Okay, so here we go. So Artemia, her mother, and her siblings had spent the Christmas of 1951 at her older sister's house. Her father had died a few years before. On her way home, two men approached the family and grabbed Artemia by the hand. 
Her mother tried to fight the aggressors by not letting go of Artemia's hand. And before they knew it, they were in the crossfire of a gunfight. Her brother-in-law was shooting at the aggressors to save Artemia, but he was not successful. Later, Artemia found out that the abductor and the accomplice were, were also at the Christmas party where they first saw her. Artemia said that she was scared because she did not know what was going to happen and that she did not see her mother for quite some time after the abduction. Yo estaba muy chiquilla, ni siquiera había tenido mi primer periodo, y todavía me gustaba jugar con las muñecas. I was very young, and I had not even had my first period, and I still liked playing with dolls. After the men kidnapped her, one took her out to eat and threatened to start shooting his gun in the restaurant if she talked to anyone. Artemia did not share whether she was sexually assaulted or not, but she did say that three months after um, the abduction, she married the abductor. And then she says, there was no way I was going to disobey my mother or the man that had taken me away. Back then, once honor was worth more than life itself. If I had been a little older or if I had been brave enough, I would have pushed him away because I did have the opportunity to do so. So again, this is one example when uh, we teach obedience and respect to children, but we don't, in this case to girls, but we don't, we don't set parameters. So, uh, you know, what can we do? You know, what can we learn from that story is that is to talk to, to uh, our daughters, to talk to uh, our nieces, to talk to the girls in our lives and, and to, and to teach them to, to embrace who they are to set parameters and that we don't always have to be nice. There are, there are times when we do have to say, stop. We don't always have to say, I'm sorry for anything. You know, that's one of the things that I hear from girls and even women my age, you know, I'm sorry, but I wanted to point out that, or I'm sorry, but I wanted to ask, you know, there's no reason why we need to apologize because we have a question. There's no reason we, we need to apologize because we want to, we have a different point of view. So teaching our daughters early on uh, to to that to to not no to, to not sprinkle their sorries like like it's salt on food <laughs> to just to be very cautious and to be to be assertive to to love you know who they are and and again to set strict parameters around uh, obedience and respect again I do say that you know these are part of our moral values especially for the, our Latinx communities but you know those parameters are very important I, I i see that um in in your work you talk about latinx cultural expectations and and i see a lot of that in my work with with college age latinas mm -hmm. uh they want to they want to be themselves they want to they want to thrive in the world they want to they want to be agents of 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 their own present and, and future active agents of, of change. But on the other hand, they, they want to meet their parents' expectations of, of being a doctor, uh, being a lawyer, uh, being the one who supports the family and give back because they came to this country to do everything that they had to do taking three jobs, four jobs, and now 
in, in one of the voices of my Latinas, it is time to repay them. It, it, I still think about that, though, that, that phrase, it's time for me to repay them it, it, when I graduate. So one of your chapters talk about obedience, respect, and responsibility. And, and, and that hits a core <laughs> in my life, lived experience as an immigrant Latina, but also uh, and all the expectations of those who stayed in la tierra de origen, the, the land of origin. But at the same time, listening to the voices of those young women that I got to, to, to share and, and, and listen. So would you be able to talk more about your research on, on this part, cultural, Latinx cultural expectation? Yes. You know, with, with women, you know, that there is, there, um, we have there we have a lot of expectations you know we put those expectations on us and then and then our families our community our society and um and we live in a culture that we celebrate the the more women do the more we celebrate them oh my gosh she's a mother and then she she serves on the board of her of her children's school and you know she serves on three boards at her job and you know she 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 exercises and my god and she does, and then and we're like yes oh my god yes and we embrace it and uh, and we stop to th- we don't stop to think about that woman is probably breaking apart inside you know it's um, the the more the more women put uh uh put on their shoulders, the more we celebrate them. And I think that we need to change how we see these women. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that I don't applaud what they do. You know, I do, but, you know, to me, uh, instead of applauding these women that are doing multiple things that are multitasking, what comes to my mind is how do you feel internally? How are you holding together? You know, those are questions that we don't ask of these women, and instead we celebrate all everything, everything that they do. But we don't, we don't see deep inside. You know, that human being that is most likely in pain, most likely no matter what she's doing, still feels that she's not doing enough because she's doing so much that you know she cannot give a hundred percent to everything that that she does. So you know, we uh, we need to um, change the narrative of the expectations. We need to be kinder to ourselves, and um, and you know sometimes we we do things because qué va a decir la gente? What would people say? You know that's that's one of the things that in Latinx culture, you know, don't do this because qué va a decir la gente? You know what are people going to say? You know like which people? <laughs> you know and and to me it's like you no know, do what what you want to do. Let me give you an example of this woman that um, when I gave a book talk, she came to me. And her, her story just really shook me to the core. So this woman, when I met her, she was, I want to say, in her mid-60s. And, uh, and she told me, she, she saw, you know, so she, you know, she said about that she liked my, my presentation and she wanted to buy the book. And then she went ahead and shared her story. And she said that her husband had passed 12 years prior. Okay, so her husband had been dead for 12 years. And she's all, and I think that I'm ready to date. He's all, but I'm nervous because I have my mom's voice inside of me that tells me you only marry once and I feel guilty. Okay. And then she went ahead and said, there, I have so many questions about women and women's bodies. 
And then in a giggling uh, tone, she's like, you know what I do? I go to Target and then I check out the Allure magazines and then I read the and I read the, the magazines to to learn. And and I'm and I'm you know, I'm standing there um, obviously feeling very grateful because she trusted me to share that story. But also part of me said is like, my God, no, those of us who are mothers, what voices are we instilling in our daughters? And and that goes well the same with fathers too. So uh, parents, you know, just parents in general. What what voice, what message do do we want our daughters to remember? Because when they when we are no longer here and something happens to them, that voice, that consejo, that that advice is gonna pop. And it's gonna and and what do how do we want that message? What do we want that message to be? Do we want that message to be one of shame? Of no, quédate callada, stay quiet, endure. You know, aguantate, or do you want? We want that message to to um, to be one that uplifts the 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 daughter. Um, so, so no, those are the things that I I we need to keep in mind, and those are the things, the many lessons that I have learned from the women that I interviewed. Um, and and it's um, I, I wanted to cry, you know, when when she told me that because you know I I saw you know she was she was full of life and excited because she wanted to date yet she felt it, it wasn't it wasn't right. Well, thank you so much, Soko, for for sharing that powerful story. Yeah, what an important reminder um, to be cautious about what voices we're instilling in our children's minds. Um, as you said, is it a, is it the voice of shame? Because <laughs> sometimes that's that's where I go is to get control back of the situation, putting shame on my children rather than lifting them up. And you know what? The other voice that I hear a lot is the one about is it my fault? The one where where we no, it's your fault. It's because you did this that this happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so later in life, if they're in a relationship and something goes wrong. What is that? You know that that girl now, woman is going to go to to that. It's your fault, voice. Uh, so yeah, and I'm not saying don't scold your children. No, 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 no. But I'm saying that we need to be cautious of of bringing to balance the messages that we instill in our children, especially in when from the age that I would say from the age that they're four to the to 18 or not 19 i was like is that their their brain is still developing there it's very very critical um you know when they're teens they'll remember what you told them when they were when they were children when they're you know when they're older you know they're going to remember what what you told them when they were teens about what to do not to do okay so that sound means that it's time for our intermission. We're going to take a quick maybe five minute break to go through some some more uh, personal questions here. So Soko, if you could travel back in time, maybe you've got a time machine or something, and you can spend one hour, either 100 years in the past, or 100 years in the future, where would you go in the world? And what would you choose to see? Oh my God, that is such a fun question. So I think that I would go a hundred years into the future. And the reason why is because when I was in grad school, it was my first year of grad school that I um, I wanted to buy an image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. I'm like, I got to have it in, in, in my room. 
And I went to um, San Antonio, Texas, to the Mex- well, what was then the Mexican American Cultural Center in San Antonio. And, uh, and I bought an image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Then I went with a friend, a friend of mine who lived in LA, who was also a grad student. She um, took the measurements of, of the image and then she went to the flea market in LA uh, when she, one of the times that she was visiting family and um, asked someone to, to do a frame for the image. So I have a frame, framed image of Our Lady of Guadalupe that has been with me since the beginning of my uh, graduate experience, my graduate uh, journey. So I would like to go 100 years into the future and see where that image is and, and what stories are being told about that, the origins of that image. So that's where I would go. You know, I would follow my, my Virgencita <laughs> or my Our Lady of Guadalupe. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I've got an image of Christ, uh, an icon of Christ on my wall in front of me. And I, now I'm wondering where that's going to be in 100 years time. <laughs> I never thought answer. about it. It's so interesting, Soko. Hmm. Yeah, I'm yes. going to think more about that. Yes, where our <laughs> Lady of Chiquinquira, which is the patroness of Colombia, will be <laughs> in oh, 100 yeah. <laughs> years. Wow, that's pretty awesome. Uh, if you could have... Uh, coffee or tea. I love coffee. And, and that's what I think about these questions. Uh, or coffee or a drink uh, with someone, any historical, biblical, theology figure. Who would you choose and, and why? Oh, my God. That's also one that, you know, I hope one day to to do this research. And the person that, that I would pick would be El Señor Cura Reyes, uh, Father uh, Reyes. But let me tell you about Father Reyes. So he was my my great uncle, and he uh, he was involved in the Cristero uh, movement. I don't know if you're familiar with the Cristero movement, but the Cristero movement that that happened at a time in Mexico in the early 1920s when President Plutarco Elias Calles censored the Catholic Church, and no mass no mass uh, um, were celebrated. The uh, priests who were who were from a different country were sent back to their countries. Many of them went back to Spain and to other parts of the world. There were uh, no baptisms, no marriages, nothing. You know, it, it was like the Catholic and all Catholic traditions were, were censored. So my my great uncle, Señor Cura Reyes, um, he was very politically active in the Cristero movement, and he was one of the authors of the uh, of the um, of the Cristero, um, of, of the Cristero uh, uh, piece that that they that they wrote where where they asked the, the the Cristero Constitution, the Cristero he was he was one of the co-authors of the Cristero Constitution, and so I would love to sit with him because I don't know very much about him. I did start to do research, and I and I found out that somewhere in, Me- in Mexico City, in one of the libraries, they have all the the letters. That he exchanged between him, that w- that he exchanged between him and the um, Huichol people from Zacatecas, so indigenous population Zacatecas, they're Huicholes. So there was communication and into how to organize and, and how to go about the, defeating those who went against the Catholic Church. So I would love to sit uh, and have coffee with him and ask him who he was. And let me tell you a little bit about, about him uh, because. He got in trouble. He was sent to a different parish um, around that time, and he was uh, devoted to Our Lady of Guadalupe. So what does he do? He 
he takes with him, you know, going back to where's my, my frame of our image of Our Lady of Guadalupe going to be 100 years. In his case, you know, he took his image of Our Lady of Guadalupe with him and he went ahead and substituted the, the town's uh, San, uh, Virgin, the, the town's uh, uh, virgin, the one that they venerated, for Our Lady of Guadalupe. <laughs> and oh my God, you know, people didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> he got in trouble, so they went ahead and you know, he switched it back to the to the the town the the virgin that the the town venerated, and then just put Our Lady of Guadalupe next next to uh next to next to it. But um, he they, the the soldiers they end up uh, killing him, so he he was assassinated mm-hmm. because he was he helped um mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, in the Cristero movement, so he would be one. Wow, Soko, this is amazing. I learned about the Cristeros when I was in college, my last year of college, and I went to Mexico City to do an internship, like about to graduate. And I went there and I lived there for quite a few months. And I learned about the Cristeros mm-hmm. uh, because I was working with an organization, like with um, with a, 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 um. And a government organization over there in DF in the Mexico City, and then I cannot believe that you are one of the family members of <laughs> this big movement that is kind of quite very very uh, famous in in Mexico and among the Catholic community. That's mm-hmm. wonderful! Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Really cool. <laughs> All right. Really cool. One last question for you. If you could gain one superpower, what would it be and why? Okay. I think my superpower, I would want it to be time travel. So I can go into the future and I can go into the past, especially the past. I'm very fascinated by historical sites. And, and when I walk into a place, I know I always try to imagine you know, how, how, how was it like to be, to, to be here you know, at, at the peak of you know, when, when this place was thriving with life. So I would say time travel so I can go to the past and to the present. That would be a, a very helpful skill for anybody who's a scholar too, hey? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, would, it, it would definitely save us a lot of time, a lot of research time. <laughs> That's right. So that sound means that we're going to transition into our final segment where we talk a little bit more about connecting your scholarship to the Christian life and to the church. Soko, something that I love about your work um, is, uh, as a practical theologian, I love your work is because you navigate uh, between uh, the academy, uh, the church, and also the real world. So I, I, I see and I admire that about you, that you are the co-founder with uh, your teenage daughter, Lupita, and chief education uh, officer of Becoming Mujeres, uh, which is a firm that helps Latina teens and their female caregivers to translate cultural expectations into opportunities. Please tell us more about this important work and uh, what our listening listeners should know more about this. Yes, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for um, for this question. So um, I, I see Becoming Mujeres as an extension, uh, not an extension, but as a part of my work. Uh, I, I would even say a more um, palpable um, 
version of my work palpable in in that it you know it continues it continues to live but in a different form you know it has taken a, a different form a different shape where it is now before it was uh everything was you know recorded documented in a book now i now you know it's it's a different venue it's to becoming mujeres and how becoming mujeres came about it was actually an experience that my daughter had in middle school it was the 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 first week of middle school when she came home and she came home crying and um and then she she told me she that she had been bullied by what she who she considered was her best friend she said some body shaming um words and um and she just you know, felt you know, my my daughter's like I feel ugly. I don't want to go back to school. She made me feel like you know insignificant, and she wanted on, and she was crying and crying. And in that moment, I um I felt that I I to me I, I shattered into a million and one pieces, and that was uh, also a very humbling experience for me because here I am, you know, someone who who writes about feminism, who who writes books on on about women who, who teaches that subject to, to, uh, to, stu- to students. And here's my daughter crying, you know, devastated, broken uh, because of what she had been told. And, uh, and it was a conversation with her that, you know, that we says, she says that you know, maybe there are other girls who are, who are going through the same thing. And then, and then she, she's like, yes, mommy, so maybe we can do something. So it's actually, it was through her that I, that to me, you know, I had a revelation, you know, I would say, uh, where that my work needed to take another step. It needed to mature in that sense. It's like, okay, you wrote the book. Now what, what are you going to do with it? So we've co-founded Becoming Mujeres. So what we do with Becoming Mujeres is that we encourage, uh, communication between female caregivers and, and teen girls. And we think it's important because, you know, one thing is to to give workshops to girls about self-esteem, about body shaming, mental health, but they go back home uh, and and the parents don't know, you know, usually it's the mother or the female caregiver that, that's the closest, they don't know how to help or they, they don't want to talk about certain things, you know, sex, sexuality, puberty, the menstrual cycle. So we can, we can do so much by giving girls tools, but if they go back to a house where what they want to share is censored, that doesn't help. So that's the reason why we focus on the uh, communication between female caregivers and their daughters. So what we do is that we give workshops to to girls and we also invite the caregivers. We have them separate and then we come back together um, as one. So and we have conversations. Again, it's about uh, puberty uh, mental health, uh, the menstrual cycle, which is to this day, you know, it's a taboo subject uh, among many, many families. Um, also, sexuality in, a, in that when when kids, or in this case, when girls become teens, that's when they're discovering their sexuality. Uh, not discovering, but in senses like it, it's becoming more palpable. And you know, what do we do? You know, they have questions. And if we're not open as as caregivers, as guardians, as parents, if we if we don't have that open communication with them, guess who they're, who they're going to go to with those questions? They're either going to go to a teen friend, 
who doesn't have the right answers, or they're going to go to Google, which also, as we know, doesn't have the right answers. So we need to have that open communication, that bridge, ese puente between uh, female caregivers and their daughters. So that's how Becoming Mujeres came about. And uh, we also give workshops to uh, college women and also college students in general. So Soko, in your book, you talk about how as girls and women mature, the way they relate to the Virgin of Guadalupe becomes more holistic and complex. Can you tell me like what this might look like? What holistic role can the Virgin play in a woman's life and in her faith? So, uh, yes, Our Lady Guadalupe, um, she is understood um, in, in some ways uh, different, but it's, I would say it's, it's, it's a progressive understanding among the three age cohorts, Las Mujeres, Las Madres, and Las Damas. With Las Mujeres, they, they see Our Lady Guadalupe as their mother, you know, as, as their heavenly mother. You know, they have their earthly mother and they have Our Lady Guadalupe as their mother. So, me, yes, mi madre, because when they were, since they're young, they are taught um, that hey, la Virgen de Guadalupe es como, es como tu mamá, es tu mamá. So they understand her as a mother. And, um, and it's a very, it's very different. You know, it's distinct from how our Virgin Mary is um, understood by many white women. You know, with, with Latinas, you know, Our Lady of Guadalupe, you know, they see her as a mother in, in, in that she is present all the time. And when they have a question about anything, even if it's passing, uh, in the case of the younger women, passing a, a quiz or writing a midterm paper, they pray to Our Lady of Guadalupe. They set the prayer stamp next to their, their exam as they're taking it. So she's the ever-present, there she is, <laughs> the ever-present mother. So they understood uh, her as a mother. And let me give you an example. When I, um, when a few years, when I was conducting the research, I, I uh, was part of a pilgrimage, two pilgrimages. The first one was with all Latinas, and then the second pilgrimage was with all women. The first one, when I went with the Latinas, uh, we went, well, the, the pilgrimage consisted of visiting the different sacred sites of Mexico City. So we went to the different um, uh, temples um, and, um, and the, the one who was leading the, the, the pilgrimage, um, it was a, a, a Sister Ceci from um, the Sisters of, of Mercy. Our Lady of Mercy, and she and she said, "Okay, one of the, the last stop is going to be Our Lady of Guadalupe. How much time do you want to spend there?" And then the women's like, "Oh, we want all day. That's the reason why we're doing this pilgrimage because we want to be with with our mother. Queremos estar con nuestra mamá." So to them, it wasn't like okay, you know, a couple of hours. They wanted to be all there all day. And sure enough, you know, we spent all day there, and it was beautiful. You know, we we just felt at home. When I went with the following group, um, the all the women, they were I was uh, the only the the only Latina. You know, there were the, all the other ones were were white women. And uh, when they said about you know, so Sister Ceci asked the same question: How long do you want to spend at the Our Lady Guadalupe uh, Basilica? And then they said, Oh, a couple of hours will be fine. And I was like, Oh my God, no, this is this is so different. And I remember when uh, when I went with the Latinas as we were coming into La Basilica, they were buying, you know, there, there's people on the site selling candy, selling food, and they were like buying stuff and you know, they were having the time of their life. And with the women, I went with a group of white women, 
they, they walked very stiff and they looked around and didn't say much. Very respectful, but didn't say much. We were there at most a couple of hours and then we went back. So then we, we did our reflection afterwards and they, you know, the sister Ceci asked the women, the white women, how they felt. And then they, little by little, started sharing and over and over, you know, they would say, well, first of all, it's like, it was very loud. You know, it was, it was too loud. There was a lot going on. And yes, yeah, sure. It was very loud. You know, there were people dancing while some people were playing um, mariachi to Our Lady, you know, as they were making their way to Our Lady Guadalupe, other there were Aztec dancers. There were um, there were people selling different, you know, as, as I mentioned, food, candy, and they say that we thought it was going to be somber, kind of like when when like Our Lady of Fatima, just very somber, and, and we couldn't pray, you know, we couldn't meditate because it was so loud. So to me, you know, it goes back to the other title of my book, the Mexican Catholic Imagination. The Mexican Catholic Imagination, you know, we express our Catholicismo, our Catholicism, with all five senses. And it's very festive, you know, even in the midst of suffering, it's festive. So, um, so again, so the, the younger, the younger women see Our Lady Guadalupe as their mother. The, las madres, the mother cohort, they see Our Lady Guadalupe as a, as their mother, but also see her as someone that understands them because Our Lady Guadalupe is also a mother. And they would say, es mi madre, pero también me entiende porque ella es madre. So she is my mother, but she also understands me because she is my mother. So again, it, it's very close to the relationship that most of us Latinas have with our mothers, is that, and especially those of us who have children. We relate to our mothers in a different way. You know, we, we relate to our mothers, not only like, mommy, mommy, no, mom, mom, I want this, but also we come to them all for advice about our, our own children. You know, how did you do that? What? So, so again, it's that same relationship that we have with our earthly mothers that we see with Our Lady of Guadalupe. Uh, the older women see her again as their, as their mother. They see her as someone they connect with because they share the motherhood experience, but they also see her as a companion, someone who is there with them all the time, especially those women who uh, live alone or, you know, who no longer have their, their husbands because they have passed, they say, ella me acompaña, ella está conmigo, no me siento sola, it's like, I don't feel alone because I know that she's there. So for the older women, she's a mother, they connect with her because there's, they have motherhood as, uh, as something that they share together, but she also becomes a companion. So the mother, the, we would say the mother-daughter relationship is very, very mature. Wow, so cool. Um, I'm thinking, thank you so much for, first of all, sharing uh, such powerful lived experiences mm -hmm. and, and, and social locations of all these uh, women that I can only imagine right now. I'm imagining the, sto the, the, the story of, of, of walking towards the Basilica, walking to Our Lady. And I'm reflecting how much this work must be so transformative in a personal level. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, and as I read your work and as I listened uh, about your work, how has your research and, and work has shaped your faith and a spiritual life and vice versa? And maybe what new spiritual practices, devotions and attitudes have specifically 
kept you going through through difficult times? Yeah, thank you. That that question is a very very powerful one. You know, and and as I I reflect on on my life and what I have learned and continue to learn from the women, all women that I interviewed, um, I I see myself as um, you know, th- there's there's so much. One of them is uh, resilience. The the uh, the other one that another uh, um, powerful lesson that I that I have taken away from from my book is that. You know, these women, um, in the midst of everything that is going on in their lives, they're all working class. The the young college women were first generation college college women. So again, as those of us who are first generation professionals know that there's there there are many many obstacles along the way. Um, you know, and, and to see that Our Lady of Guadalupe is there consistently uh, with the mothers as they're raising their children within the trials and tribulations of not having documents. Some of these women did not have documents. They held on to, to Our Lady of Guadalupe and they believed in, in, um, in the protection of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And then seeing the older women, um, understand Our Lady of Guadalupe in a very mature way in they said understanding her as, as a companion, what that, um, what that teaches me is that, you know, devotion and, you know, and, and devotion to our, in this case, Our Lady of Guadalupe, but devotion to any religious figure is, it's beautiful. And, uh, and we can understand it better if we reflect on how, how we mature in that devotion, the devotion that we have to a particular um, saint or sacred entity. It's not the same throughout our years. It, it changes and, and I see that, you know, I see myself also the devotion of Our Lady Guadalupe is very different from when I was writing the book, when I was writing the book, I mean, when I was doing the research of Our Lady, uh, the research for the dissertation, I was a grad student. So I saw her as a mother. Now I reflect enough for her. I know I, I, I understood her as like, help me, mom, you know, please, mama. And I would cry. Uh, but now as a mother is, you know, I, I come to Our Lady and it's like, oh my God, it's like, how do I do this? I know. Oh, sometimes when my daughter um, comes, you know, home and you know, she's sad, it's like, okay, how do I ride this, this this choppy wave with her and not letting her go? So you know, I pray to Our Lady, Our Lady of Guadalupe, and I pray to her, and I also you know talk to my own mom, my my mother, and now I'm a as um, mentioned, I'm a caregiver to both of my parents, so um, they're they're older, and I see that my relationship with my mother and my father as well, aside from being one of uh, parent parents and daughter is one of companionship. So in many ways, it's um, that I'm moving in that direction now where I'm understanding Our Lady of Guadalupe as not only my mother, but or, or someone that um, shares the motherhood experience with me, but she's also my companion. Is I now I, you know, I pray to Our Lady of Guadalupe but I, I I pray for I, I pray to her in a different way because um, I'm a, now I'm a companion to my parents and that's that's the type of the the strength companionship that's the type of strength that I pray for uh, every day to Our Lady of Guadalupe so it definitely has transformed me in many many ways. Wow, I have never really thought about how your devotion can change like that over the different phases of your life. So thank you. I, I've learned a lot. I want to wrap it up with one more practical question. 
Um, I have three daughters and I'd wager that a lot of our listeners also are parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles of girls. Much of your work highlights the major barriers and expectations placed upon girls in Mexican Catholic families. But I think even for non-Mexican Catholic girls, there remain gendered barriers and expectations in many of our religious and our secular systems and institutions. What's one thing that parents should know or should do to help their daughters to overcome barriers and gendered expectations and become the women that they were really meant to be? Yeah, thank you. It's again a very important question, especially for the for the the gener- the new generations in the now because of social media. You know, yeah. back back when we were teens, uh, social media was you know was not part of of our experience. You know, bullies stayed at school. All the school drama stayed at school, right. and um, and we came home and we disconnected completely. Nowadays, girls are connected twenty four seven. You know, so how do you deal with it? So for me, one um, the most important advice is to talk to them. Is that to to have that open communication? I cannot emphasize it more. And there are going to be times, you know, because I experienced them myself that your daughters are going to tell you, go away, I need to be alone. And, and some, you know, it's easier for us parents, it's easier to say, okay, I'll give her time and I'll come back in half an hour or, you know, she needs to mature. So she has to figure it out on her own, you know, just like I did, or, you know, she eventually will find the answers. And the thing is like, there, there may be 13, 14, 15, and, uh, but they're still kids. They don't know it. No, they don't, they, they're still learning. So when they say go away or don't talk to me, you know what I I've done and the advice that I give, okay, I'm, okay, don't talk to them, but but sit in that room where they are, sit in a corner and just let them know I'm gonna be here and I'm not gonna move away because I want you to know that what ma- what's going on with you really matters to me. So when you're ready to talk, we'll talk, and eventually they will come around and they will thank you for not leaving them alone. You know because I've had that experience with, with my daughter when she was bullied, as I mentioned in middle school, that there were times that she would come from school, don't talk to me, I want to be alone. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, no, it's like, you know, we, we gotta, we, we, we gotta, in a way, master the, the, the tidal waves of life and ride those choppy waves with them and not let go, not let go uh, of them. So I would say to talk to them, to have that, that open communication uh, with them. Um, as they're um, growing older, they're going to have questions about boys and girls and relationships. And sometimes we're like, oh, I don't want to hear it. But as uncomfortable some of these conversations may sound uh, to us, uh, we just we, we need to take a drink of water <laughs> and, and listen and listen with compassion more, you know, with the ear of a judge. You know, move, put that aside. What they need you know, in that moment, it's a parent who they know they can trust. And as uncomfortable as that conversation may feel for us parents, we got to be open uh, to, to that. And then the other thing too that I would say, and this is no more of also for all ages, but particularly for, for those who have young children, is to involve them in what you do. You know, sometimes we say, oh, you know, mom has to work or dad has to work. You got to, you know, you got to step away. But when they're kids, um, you know, they're wondering, wondering like, what is work? How does work look like? Why is he so tired? Why is she so tired? 
you know, what, what does she mean? Like, well, how come, how come dad falls asleep when we start watching a movie? It's like our favorite movie or mom. Why, why does she like to now? You know, why is going on? So to me is like, I would say find creative ways to engage your children in the work that you do, no matter what it is. Uh, you know, if, you know, if you are someone that, uh, let's say, um, it's, um, that for a living, you, you have, you, you clean houses. Okay. You know, you're, you're, you, that, you know, that you go from house to house and you, you clean houses. Okay. Maybe you cannot take your child with you uh, because the, the girl, the daughter has to go to school or your, your children have to go to school. But Hey, how about when you come home and you feed and you need that, you need, you need to make a list of the different items that you need because you're running low on your inventory. Have your child write, write that list. Is like, no, that these are the items that I need in order to do my job because this is what mom or dad do. You know, a, if you have the privilege of working the space uh, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an office, for example, or in our case, in the academy, if, you know, if we have had that privilege, then bring them to class. And, and what I used to do ever since Lupita was in kinder, I would bring her and I would take her and I would talk to the teachers on the first day of, each, of the quarter of this. Of, I did it every first day of each quarter. Uh, but you can do it, you know, once depending on when, when, when you have time, but I would take her out of school and I would tell her, okay, Lupita, you are going to be my teaching assistant for the day. And then she'd be, I remember the first time she's like, Oh, mommy, you mean like a, like a professor? Okay. You gotta, you gotta, uh, find me a dress, like the ones that you wear. So she kind of wore like what I wore and what I had to do, you know, I, I, I had, you know, I, I brought her with me to class. And then she was the one who was responsible of passing the the, the syllabus to the students, That's and she awesome. just and, and the and the students loved it. First of all, the 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 college students loved it because it was a perfect icebreaker. Oh my god, you know, my professor has a life. You know, she's like my mom, or he's like my dad. Then when Lupita was a little older, then you know, I told her, okay, now you're the one who's going to walk in first, and you introduce me. So she, sure enough, you know, and I, and I have video, uh, video, um, images of her. Cause I'm like, I have to videotape this where she would walk in and she'd be like, hello students. My name is Lupita Castaneda Lyles. And the students reaction were like, okay, who's, why is this kid like carrying like, like a, a, the, the stack of stuff <laughs> and then and I introduce herself and then she'll be like, here's my mommy. And then I would walk, walk in. So again, there's different ways of, uh, integrating your, your, the children in, in what you do. Um, when you're putting together, uh, again, I'm talking from my experience and, and academic, the syllabus, and maybe there's, there's, there's a subject there that you think that might interest your, your kid and be like, Oh my God, you know, this is what I think of, of doing. What do you think? Um, or even, you know, for example, you know, cause I know that you know, some of us you know, do teach things that our kids just cannot comprehend, but maybe there's space where you're going to, in your, in your quarter or semester where you're going to show a film. And then you just, you know, ask, you ask your child, you know, I'm, I'm going to be showing a, a, a film in class. What do you think? Well, now we have COVID, so it's different. But, you know, before pre-COVID, I would tell Lupita, what do you think if we like do like a potluck and we ask students to bring food? And she's like, yes, that's a good idea. So just know, again, uh, being creative, but definitely integrate your, your children in what you do. Because then next time you tell them, dad has to work, mom has to work, they'd be like, ah, okay, I know. That's a great tip. I'm definitely going to take that to heart and bring my kids in next time. Absolutely. Soko, muchas gracias. It's been 
a real pleasure uh, talking with you today. Uh, such a life-giving conversation. Mm -hmm. We look forward to continue learning about your work and 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 we wish you all the best in in the work uh, that you do as well as to your Lupita. Thank you again for joining us. Oh, thank you. No, thank you for again for gifting me the opportunity about sharing my work with others. I mean, this is to me it's a, it's a priceless moment. Not only priceless, but for me, it's a sacred moment. It's it's a it's a way of me connecting to to other people who, you know. My hope is that are able to relate to some of the, the the pieces of the conversation that we had today. So thank you, thank you for this beautiful gift of sharing. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website at bridgentheology.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, We'd love it if you would share the show on your social media or in person with a friend, a church member, a teacher, or a colleague. This episode was produced by Kevin Hill.